Today's scripture comes from Jeremiah 29, 1-7. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's pray. Ask for the Lord's blessing. And Father, now we ask that you would speak to us. For you said that when your saints gather under the summoning of your spirit, under the protective custody of the gospel, that you would come and speak to your people. Lord, your word is powerful. It creates something from nothing. And it turns sinners into saints. And it provides those who have been made mortal to become immortal and have eternal life. Father, your word is a thing that sustains us more than anything, more than food, more than drink, more than status, more than name. Father, more than things, even more than others. Father, it is through your word we have access to you because the word, Jesus Christ, has come and set us free, giving us full access to you, freeing us from the bondage of sin. And so, Father, now we pray that you would be with us as we sit under the feet of your spirit. Speak to us now. For we ask that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Can we go home now? Please, I just want to go home. Can, can we just go home, please? Those words sometimes come out of the mouth of children and most often in situations where they are terrified or very unfamiliar with. Just last year, Kara's aunt came in from Seattle and wanted to take my daughter out to the city for a nice dinner and a nice show at the ballet, given that she is an aspiring ballerina. And it was a perfect night for her, that is, until they were waiting for the train to get back home. Because there at Penn Station, waiting for their train on the lure, 10 feet away from them, two grown men arguing to the point of high decibels, to where it was obvious to everyone that they were about to get violent. And in, in that moment, Kara saw that, turned to her aunt and said, Imo, I want to go home. Please, can you take me home? Please, just, I want to go home. You ever felt that way before? You ever been in a situation where you were confronted with fear, frustration, maybe even failure, and the only reaction that you had going through your mind is, I want to be anywhere but here. That is, I want to be at a place where I feel protected, where I feel peace. You ever felt that way? Of course you have. We all have. And yet here's what's so ironic. When it comes to the people that you and I rub shoulders with every single day, the thing that makes them feel this way the most happens to be the place that you and I call home, New York City. 
just last year, there were tons of articles coming out talking about how so many of our fellow New Yorkers are leaving this place permanently never to come back. Consider these opening words from a CBS New York article that begins this way. As the old song goes, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Unfortunately for New York, more people are choosing to leave the Big Apple and go anywhere but here. According to U.S. Census data released Monday, people are leaving New York at a faster rate than nearly any other state in the nation. For the fourth straight year, the state's population decreased as the number of residents choosing to go elsewhere outpaced the number of births, new residents moving in, and people immigrating to the Empire State, end quote. Turns out, when most people think that they want to go home, they don't think of the place that you and I think of when we think of home, which is our city. Now, of course, New York is not the only one that's experiencing this max exodus of its citizens. Studies are telling us that L.A., Chicago, D.C. are also experiencing this urban flight. And the question that I want to ask is, as followers of Jesus, how are we to respond to this growing trend? How are we to respond to this trend that we see so often where it seems that for most people that when they think of the city, their immediate reaction is to despise it and therefore to depart from it? Should we contribute to it by leaving ourselves or should we be countercultural? Should we be different and instead do what is counterintuitive and settle down and be rooted in this place known as the city? We're continuing our vision sermon series that we do at the beginning of every new year. And today we're at a crucial part of our vision statement because I say we're at a portion that is very crucial for us to understand as a church in terms of what we believe as one of our core values. Take a listen to the relevant portion of our vision statement and it goes like this. NCF exists to grow up in the gospel in order to go out with the gospel through members that flourish Queens, New York, the world, and the next generation. You see how it says New York right there? Focus on the word that comes right after the city. New York City. That's the topic of discussion at hand. See, one of the core convictions that we have as a leadership is that we believe that God has called us to be in the city because he's called us to serve it, to bless it, and therefore be a presence in it. And it is my hope and prayer that today's sermon will give you a compelling and convicting commitment for those of you who call NCF your spiritual home and settling down here and calling the city your earthly home. That is until Jesus calls you to your ultimate true home. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you in light of today's message. First, let's talk about the challenge of the city. Then let's talk about the call to the city. And let's end it with the caller of the city. Okay, the challenge of the city the call to the city, and finally, the caller to the city. Let's begin with point one, the challenge of the city. Read again with me verse one and two of our passage, where we read as follows. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. Okay, Here's what's going on. God commands his servant, the prophet Jeremiah, to write a letter to the Jews who were sent into exile by the Babylonian Empire. Now, 
For all of you who failed in history, a quick refresher. Here's some Bible history 101. In 597 BC, the Babylonian Empire came and conquered the nation of Judah. And when I say conquered, I really mean conquered with all the bells and whistles that come attached to it. I'm talking about murder, raping, pillaging, all that stuff they did to the poor nation of Judah. And then after all that was done, what did they do? They took all of the cultural elites and scattered them across the whole empire. The bold and the beautiful, the strong and successful, the lucrative and the leaders. They were all banished away, scattered and separated from one another, never to be heard of again. Why? Because these Babylonians wanted to make sure that the Jews could not regroup and hence regain any sense of identity or hope as God's people because they had no one who could inspire, no one who could lead them while in exile. Now, it's in this context that a bunch of false prophets emerge amongst the exiles that's referred to in verse 8 and 9. And what do they start doing? They start giving quote-unquote prophecies or false prophecies claiming that this is just a temporary setback, that this is going to be just a temporary situation. Many of these prophets were falsely telling God's people that they were going to spend at most roughly around two years in exile, but soon God is going to answer their prayers and send them back home. And it's in this context that God felt compelled to send his prophet Jeremiah to write a letter so that he could tell his people what his intentions were. And do you know what God's intentions were for his people in exile? Verse 8, read it again. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Turns out, God had no intention of sending his people back home to their beloved Israel anytime soon. And just by the way that God is speaking here, you could tell that was the collective psyche of God's people in verse 8. They really, really wanted to go home. Evidenced by the fact that they're finding themselves so easily deceived by these false prophets. And you know, it's not too hard to figure out why they so easily believe these guys. Because where were they? They were in Babylon. Babylon. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know what I mean when I say it that way. Because as you search the scriptures over and over, you see Babylon being constantly portrayed as such a wicked nation that God uses it as the standard to refer to any wicked nation that is against God and his people. Consider this quote from the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery where it says this, quote, Babylon is one of the dreaded images of the Bible, stretching from Old Testament history to the apocalyptic vision of Revelation. Babylon is portrayed throughout the Bible as the mightiest of cities. Her king is pictured as the god of a non-Israelite myth who aspired to ascend the mountains of the gods and make himself equal to God. Already in the Old Testament and certainly in the New, Babylon stands not for a specific power but more generally for world power in opposition to God. The empire where God's people live in exile. She is the harlot, drunk on the blood of the martyrs, making others drunk with the wine of fornication. She is the arrogant and secure queen of the whole earth and quote this is what babylon was and this is what babylon continues to be in every city on this earth including our own i mean haven't you heard the lyrics to that song empire state by the great alicia keys 
Do you remember some of the lyrics that are contained? Take a listen to some of the things that she's saying. She says, I'm going to make it by any means. I got a pocket full of dream, baby. I'm from New York. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. Now you're in New York. These streets will make you feel brand new. Big lights will inspire you. Here for New York, New York, New York. You know, as beautiful as that song sounds, it's those first words that I just quoted that sends shivers down my spine. I'm going to make it here by any means, meaning you will do anything, presumably to anyone, just so that you can, quote, unquote, make it. Not the kind of mindset that we are to have as followers of God, right? And there it is. That is the challenge of the city. It's a place that is so intolerant, maybe even downright hostile to your commitment to God. And when you add to that the further challenges that this city puts on us, the challenge of financial security, the challenge of psychological stability, the challenge of physical safety, it's almost a no-brainer to the kind of reaction that a normal, logical person should have, which is depart, flee, get away from the city, go far away, live in the suburbs, do what you got to do. But don't be anywhere near the city, right? I mean, why in the world would you ever want to interact or invest in a place where your money doesn't go nearly as far, where your kids are crammed in the classroom with 30 others, or you are crammed on the 7 train at 5 a.m. in the morning, six inches from a guy who could possibly be a homicidal maniac, right? I mean, just being a non-Christian in the city is hard enough. How much more is it for you, Christian, as you attempt to faithfully live before your God when the systems and the culture of this place is hostile against your God and therefore hostile to you? You know, it's that last question that we need to linger on for just a moment. Because there, God wants us to be able to answer with a specific answer that he wants all his people to respond with. And to explain, let me go to my next point, the call to the city. Pick it back up with me, starting in verse 4. We read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Pause right there. Your attention, please. God has just given his answer to the question his people are asking. You know what that question is? Can we go home, God? Lord, I want to go home. Can, can you just send us home? To which God says, no, you may not. Think about that for a moment. Here is God's people, i.e. God's children, asking their heavenly father, Lord, I want to go home. Can you take me home, please? To which God says, no. Because for now, this is your home. This is where you belong. This is where you need to live. And when God says live, he's not just talking about merely surviving where you go to work and then come home immediately, lock your doors and just stay hidden amongst yourselves with your family or just stay with your own little enclaves or or social ghettos with like the other Jews were tempted to do back then. No, God is saying when I want you to live in exile, I mean really live. Live life to the full as if you were in Jerusalem itself. Why? Because although the city was a place filled with wicked and wretched people, those were the very people God calls his people to love because those are the people whom God 
loves. One of the most outrageous statements God makes to an Old Testament prophet is the one that he made to the prophet Jonah as he's trying to explain to him why he's not going to destroy the city of Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire that is responsible for such atrocious things against Jonah's people, God's people, the Jews. Listen to what God says to Jonah in Jonah 4, verse 11. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Now, it's crazy. How bad does a city have to be to where even the animals are messed up, right? I mean, we think, oh, man, kids today, they're messed up. It's not just the kids. Even the animals are going bonkers. And yet God says, should I not feel sorry for such a great city? That word sorry in the Hebrew is the same word for compassion, for mercy. See, God calls his people to love the city, not because it's the place to be, but because it's the place that no one wants to be. You have to understand, and maybe you figured it out by now, but one thing that is very clear in the Bible is that God's primary business in this world is to fix what has fallen apart and to restore what has been ruined by sin. That's God's primary business, to fix what has fallen apart and to restore what has been ruined by sin. That is his business. And guess what? It's a family business. And you, as children of God, are called to partake in that very same business as well. Consider what Pastor Tim Keller writes, quote, Most people who read the Bible know that God invented the family. It's not a human creation. God invented it because God reveals himself as a father, and he tells us we're children. Therefore, though sin has taken the family and often turned it into a place of abuse and pain, we don't abandon the family as an institution. We are called to redeem and rebuild the family. The human family is a pattern given by God. Therefore, we believe it was good once and will be good again. We know the future of humanity is, in some respects, a family. God is also building a city. He is a city architect and urban planner, and we are citizens of that city. While I would not put the city on the same footing as the family as a universal human social structure, it is obvious that the development of the city is part of the providence, design, and will of God. If sin has so twisted the city as it's twisted the family and turned it into a place of pain and suffering just as it's done to the family, that doesn't mean we get rid of the city. We don't scoff at it or take pleasure in its troubles. We as Christians are called to redeem and rebuild the city. Do you see the logic? God invented the city. So we don't abandon it, we build it. That last statement, we build it, should be better said to be rebuild it. We rebuild the city. Now here's a question. How in the world do we do that? I don't know about you, but I don't have a degree in city planning. I have no idea how to build a city, let alone rebuild it. How in the world are we supposed to do this thing? Well, God actually gives us the answer in verse 7. What does he say? Seek what? The welfare of the city. That word welfare is a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. And for those of you who grew up with uh, Jewish friends like I did, we all know what that word is. It's the word peace. But of course, that doesn't clarify anything. How do you build or rebuild a city with peace, with shalom? I don't understand. Let me see if I can clarify. Consider these words from theologian Cornelius Plantica as he defines shalom as following. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior, 
opens doors, and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is things the way they should be. We instinctively know when things are not the way it should be. When politicians take a kickback, that's not the way it should be. When teachers are molesting students, you hear about that? It's not the way it's supposed to be. When policemen are shooting people they're called to serve and protect, that's not the way it should be. When teenagers are being trafficked into the city to the wicked pleasures of certain powerful people, that's not the way it should be. Shalom is the complete opposite of those things, and that is what we Christians are to bring into the city. And the way we do this is by living out what I call a holier-for-thou spirituality. A holier-for-thou spirituality. Not a holier-than-thou spirituality, but a holier-for-thou spirituality. Read again. Verse 5 and 6, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. Notice, God first says, build some houses, okay? Which, of course, assumes hire a real estate agent, okay? Hire some people who can build. Create some business for people to where they can be employed, Put yourself in a position of paying people or getting paid. And then he says, plant gardens. Okay? But of course, in the ancient days where sharecropping was the norm, obviously one person could not create their own foods that required a full balanced diet. They needed to go to the marketplace. They needed to barter. They needed to trade. They needed to get into business. Right? They needed to create partnerships. And then he goes on to say, get married make babies, raise them up, and then send them off to get married as well, which assumes what? Stable marriages, nurturing parenting, good, godly, disciplined shepherding of your children to where other people want their kids to marry yours? Hmm. The way we Christians bring shalom into the city is simply living a life of integrity, a living a life of righteousness, holiness, to where practically that means we're honest students, we're hardworking employees and employers, we're faithful spouses, we're present parents, we're law-abiding citizens, and we advocate for the poor, the broken, the forgotten, the forsaken. That's what it means. It means being a Christian in public, which is what God called you to be, salt and light. This is our call as followers of Jesus. We're called to serve the city. We're not called to sever from the city. And the primary way we serve the city is when we have this mindset that the reason why I want to be holy is so that my holiness doesn't cause me to condemn others or to judge others, but to bless others. Holier for thou, not holier than thou where you see your righteousness as a way of collaterally blessing your neighbors, not collaterally damaging, which unfortunately we see too often in the church today. I love this quote from the great London preacher Charles Spurgeon. He writes this, quote, No doubt innumerable blessings descend upon families and nations through the godly lives and patient sufferings of the saints. We cannot be saved by the merits of others, but beyond all question, we are benefited by their virtues. Amen.
This is our call to the city, to benefit New York through the virtues of God's people. But of course, that's much easier said than done because you know how it is. You work there, you've lived there, you're still living there, you're interacting with people who are still there, and you know the grind. Did you guys read Pastor James' late, uh, latest newsletter? I read it the other day. He was like, man, it is so slow-paced up here. And then he says, this is not a complaint. <laughs> and I read that, and I was like, shaking with such envy. Maybe anger, too. I know how hard it is. Raising five kids in Queens? Hmm. And so the question is, how do we find in us the impulse, the desire, the motive to be able to do this when, quite honestly, our flesh is saying, it's too hard, I don't want to do it, I just want to go home? The answer leads me to the final point, the caller of the city, or the caller to the city, excuse me. Read again verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, this is a weird statement from God. And the reason why I say it's such a weird statement is because God commands his people to pray for the prosperity of Babylon. Now, you're thinking to yourself, why is that so weird? You know why it's so weird? Because in other parts of the Bible, God permitted his people to pray against Babylon to where they would pray for violence and for destruction against it. You don't believe me? Here's proof. Psalm 137, verse 809. Oh, Babylon. You will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them across the rocks. This is in the inspired word of God, folks. God allowed this prayer to be in here. Now, when you hear this prayer, it's clear from the perspective of the Jews how they felt towards the Babylonians. You know how they felt? They felt one thing and one thing only. You are my enemy. You are my sworn enemy. And I despise you. Right? And when you realize that, you start to think, maybe, maybe the reason why God allowed these prayers to be recorded for us to read today is so that we would be reminded that these are enemies of God's people. And when you do, now you begin to make some connections. Now you begin to say, ah, now I understand why God is telling his people in our passage to pray for the prosperity of the Babylonians. Because what is he essentially saying? Pray for your enemies. Does that sound familiar, Christian? It should. If it doesn't, here's the last passage of scripture for us to study. Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your name neighbor and hate your enemy but i say love your enemies pray for those who persecute you in that way you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven these are the words of jesus found in the famous sermon on the mount and he's what he says here echoes what he told the jews in exile in our passage pray for our enemies why because according to jesus you become more like your father in heaven turns out god has enemies too And yet his posture has not been and never will be to wish or desire the downfall of his enemies, but rather for their good. Their shalom, evidenced by the fact that he himself says, I love my enemies. Here's the question. Who are the enemies of God? The Bible says it's really simple. If you want to figure out 
who an enemy of God, there's really just two qualifications. You have sinned against God or you're still living in sin against God. Christian, don't raise your hand, but just raise it in your mind. Any of you in here ever sinned? Anyone? Anyone in here still sinning now? It's you. It's me. We're the enemies of God. We were the enemies of God. We're children, and yet even now, every now and then, sometimes more so than less, we still behave like enemies of God. Isn't that funny? God says, pray for your enemies. Treat your enemies the way I treat you and still treat you now. We are the enemy of God, which means God has every right to disengage and to distance himself the way that you want to disengage and distant from this city or any city for that matter. Because of our sins, God should be repulsed by us the way we get repulsed by the city. And yet, instead of doing any of those things, what does God do? He comes into this world as Jesus Christ, and he suffers all the pain, all the sufferings, all the humiliation, and ultimately the death that results of coming near us, right? Because he loves us that much. Because he loves us that much. There's a weird statement in our passage where it says, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare, right? That's what Jeremiah, or God says through Jeremiah. If you seek the prosperity, you will find your welfare as you seek the welfare of the city. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. Christian, as you go through the pain and suffering that comes with living in this city that you could easily avoid if you moved somewhere else, you will find, you will discover just a small taste of what God had to endure, what he had to suffer to have you. A small taste. And you know what that does? That transforms the bitter experiences that you get from the city and it sweetens your awareness of God's love for you because of what he did even greater to come after you. Do you see? As you go through the pain, you emerge out with such joy. As you have to sacrifice Many things in order to be here. You understand the sacrifice Jesus did when he was here for you. That's how you acquire the desire. That's how you strengthen your motive. That's how you get emboldened in your commitment to stay here and to live out the call that he's given all of us, which is to be a blessing in this city. It all begins and continues on your awareness of Christ's love for you. Here's the question. Have you encountered that love? A couple next steps as we end. First, if you're here investigating Christianity, but today was the tipping point, you're like, I'm ready. I'm ready to go all in with Christ. Then take this time now and go to him and say, Lord, I acknowledge you for who you are and who you've always been and who you always will be. You are my God. You are my creator and you have loved me before the foundation of the world and I'm ready now to begin what should have been always. I'm ready to have a relationship with you and afterwards come talk to me or Pastor Charles. We would love to help you in your next stages. Number two, ask yourself, do you have a negative posture toward this city? One way to figure this out is that you have no desire, no history of actively meeting the needs of the city. Is that you? If so, take this time now, lift up a prayer of repentance. 
and say, God, forgive me, help me, change me. And then we'll give you some opportunities. Our church is actively growing our outward compassion ministry. One stepping stone that you can begin now is by participating in your Oikos groups, one of our inner city crew missions that we do every month, every month. Every month you're given opportunity to serve those who are suffering in this city. And more opportunities will arise. The question is, will you take advantage of it? Okay. Participate in one of our Beacon-sponsored events. Okay. As you scroll through your Facebook feed, your Twitter accounts, your news, your podcast, and you hear what's going on in the city, instead of reacting with the attitude, man, I hate this place, I want to get out of here, maybe you can ask God to change your heart and say, Lord, can you give me your heart? Can you give me a different perspective? Just offer that up. Every time you get tempted to be discouraged and dissuaded of the place that you call home. And maybe you can ask, Lord, can you help me to have your eyes and your heart for this place? Okay. Finally, join an Oikos group. Join an Oikos group because that is really the bedrock of how we live out our scattered lives of being a blessing to this city. Okay. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to truly take heart today's message. It is not easy to swallow. It is not easy to accept. And yet, Father, it so is when we think about the cross, when we think about what you have done for us, how you so easily could have just stayed distant in your heavenly kingdom, so so protected, so at peace from all the chaos, all the turbulence, all the suffering. And yet, Lord, you have shown us your very heart, the heart that we are to emulate, the heart that we are to abide in with our hearts as well. God, help us to live this out. We don't have the strength to do it, but we know that you do, for you've already done it for us on the cross. Help us to live out this calling of being for the city, of being outwardly compassionate so that we can truly live out our call here. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.